Welcome to The Thing About Austin, a podcast about Jane Austen's world. I'm Zan. And I'm Diane. And this episode, we're talking about Fanny's stargazing. We are back at Mansfield Park for this episode. The young people have recently returned from their adventure at Southerton, and are now having a relatively quiet night in at Mansfield. The Crawfords are over, so you know things are gonna get wild. (laughs) After having a conversation with Fanny and Edmund about the latter's determination to become a clergyman, Mary Crawford is pulled into the grouping around the pianoforte, where the Bertram sisters and Crawford are about to sing a glee. Not quite like the television show, but (laughs) I'm sure we'll cover that in a future episode. Fanny and Edmund are near a window, and Fanny takes the opportunity to wax lyrical at some length about the stars. (laughs) And really, all of this is tracking with what we know of Fanny. Absolutely. Absolutely. She loves a poetic moment. She really does. And so after she's had this moment of just rhapsodizing about the stars, she and Edmund then have a little bit more of a dialogue. And so we're going to start with with Edmund, since, you know, you get to enjoy Diane and I doing our best impersonation of the two cousins. (laughs) A little radio play for you all. That's right. So here's Edmund. I like to hear your enthusiasm, Fanny. It's a lovely night, and they are much to be pitied who have not been taught to feel in some degree, as you do, who have not at least been given a taste for nature in early life. They lose a great deal. You taught me to think and feel on the subject, cousin. I had a very apt scholar. There's Arcturus, looking very bright. Yes, and the bear... I wish I could see Cassiopeia. We must go out on the lawn for that. Should you be afraid? Not in the least. It is a great while since we have had any stargazing. Yes, I do not know how it has happened. The glee began. We will stay till it is finished, Fanny, said he, turning his back on the window. And as it advanced, she had the mortification of seeing him advance too, moving forward by gentle degrees toward the instrument. And when it ceased, he was close by the singer's, among the most urgent in requesting to hear the glee again. Fanny sighed alone at the window till scolded away by Mrs. Norris's threats of catching a cold. Not even the stars are a match for Mary Crawford singing. That's a tough act to follow, right? (laughs) Yeah. And I do love, I do love that the scene ends with Mrs. Norris being like, get away from the window, Fanny. It's such a good character portrait (laughs) of all of them. Right? She's had this contemplative moment. Edmund's lured away by the siren's voice. And Mrs. Norris is just going to be mean to Fanny. <laughs> it's just... We're all just learning so much about everyone That's right. here. So there are three specific constellations or stars mentioned here that deserve a moment of clarification. First up, let's start with Fanny's mention of the bear, which is the constellation Ursa Major. Right. So we are going deep into constellation chit-chat here. So the Big Dipper which is what we call it in in North America, or the plow, if you're from the UK or Ireland, is an asterism, or basically a recognizable shape that makes up part of Ursa Major, the constellation. So it's just a part of the bigger piece. And it's one of the most familiar star shapes in the northern sky. It's definitely the first and maybe the only constellation that I can reliably identify. And I even took an astronomy class in college. Yeah, I definitely feel like it's, it's sort of like baby's first constellation. Yes, definitely. And then we also have a mention of Arcturus from Edmund. Right. And Arcturus is a red giant star in the northern hemisphere. 
And it's actually the brightest star in the Boötes or Herdsman constellation. And it's actually the fourth brightest star in the sky. So when he's like, oh, it's burning bright tonight, like it's because it's one of the most visible stars. Arcturus also means guardian of the bear in ancient Greek, which makes sense because it's really close to Ursa Major. So it's kind of like it's, it's protecting the bear. And then finally, Fanny mentions that she wishes they could see Cassiopeia. Yes. So this constellation is on the opposite side of Ursa Major, right? We've got Boötes on one side and Cassiopeia on the other side. So to find Cassiopeia in the sky, you would follow the line between the last star in the Big Dipper's handle, then go to the North Star, which is the last star in the Little Dipper's handle, and then keep following that line and it'll lead you to the beginning of the W-shaped asterism that makes up the constellation of Cassiopeia. And so since this constellation is a bit further away from the bear and Arcturus, it makes sense when Edmund states that they're going to have to leave the house and stand on the lawn to be able to see this last constellation. But of course, this doesn't end up happening <laughs> in the novel. He's lured away by the glee. That's right. And because of that luring, this feels like an opportunity to observe that Edmund is torn here, you know, between these two options. He's got the Cassiopeia, the nature, the fanny, and then Mary Crawford society. He's just, he's apparently- it's Tough choices. He's going through some stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so stargazing and astronomy is- a delightfully nerdy deep dive, <laughs> or at least we think it's a delightfully <laughs> nerdy deep dive. But what does this have to do with Austin's novel? Surprisingly, more than you might think. Right. Before we get into the more figurative and literary reasons, we do need to talk logistics and just coordinates and all of that. So according to Alma Zook, a professor of physics and astronomy, Austin's reporting of the evening sky during this incident is sufficiently accurate and detailed that one may determine, to a fair degree of precision, the orientation of the drawing room at Mansfield Park in which this conversation takes place. So Almazuk is basically like, I can tell you which way the windows face, based off of this conversation. Which is pretty darn impressive. And so the way that she is making this deduction is she's kind of pinpointing specific details from the novel. So she points out that earlier in the novel, Austin tells us that Mansfield Park is in the county of Northampton. So she's already got kind of a, a, a basic latitude that she can follow. Then she, she tells us that the scene that we're seeing here with the stargazing takes place about an hour after sundown, because the prolonged conversation with Mary starts at twilight. So she's, she's eyeballing this about an hour after sundown. And we also know which constellations are supposedly visible from the window, which obviously gives us an idea of the angle that we're working with. And we also know from the text that the events take place in mid-August, because earlier in the chapter, Mariah is doing some calendar-based math on how much more time she has to bring Henry Crawford up to scratch before Sir Thomas comes home from Antigua so that she doesn't have to marry Rushworth. Right. And we don't want to just mention Antigua and slide right past that. For those listeners who maybe haven't read Mansell Park in a while, Sir Thomas is in Antigua checking on his plantation where all the labor would be coming from enslaved people. And that's something that will be getting its own episode because it's hugely important to discuss. We didn't want to just mention it as if it was a throwaway detail or, or insignificant detail. Yeah, exactly. So all of the details that we've been given from the text and that Zook has lined out for us give us a really specific night sky view. And as a result, Zook takes this information and gives us a really just an absolute gem of deduction. And so I'm going to be quoting her work kind of at length because it's just such good deductive work. Here we go. 
We may safely conclude, then, that the date of the conversation is around August 15th. On August 15th, sunset occurs around 7 p.m. at the latitude of Mansfield Park, which is Northampton and around 52 degrees north. Twilight ends about half an hour later, and the conversation takes place at about 8 p.m. In the mid-August Mansfield Park sky, the Big Dipper is slightly south of west, and Cassiopeia is slightly north of east. Arcturus, which isn't visible in the winter, is a bright star over the west. According to their conversation, Fanny and Edmund can see Ursa Major and Arcturus from the drawing room, but they must go out onto the lawn for Cassiopeia. If this is the case, the drawing room window has to face just about due west, plus or minus 20 degrees. She just has laid out this amazing case of, I know where Mansfield Park is, and I know which way the windows face. She is the Sherlock Holmes of literary astronomers. Right? Right? I'm impressed. Basically, Austin nailed her astronomical references. And it's most likely that she nailed them because, as Zook continues, Jane Austen was acquainted with a room from which the August sky would have just the appearance she has described. It is probably no coincidence that Stonely Abbey, near Leamington Spa, is located at a latitude of 52 degrees, 52 minutes, 15 seconds north. That is some precision. We know that Austen, Cassandra, and their mother all visited Stonely Abbey in 1806 with their mother's cousin, Reverend Thomas Lee, who had just inherited the property. So Austen was certainly familiar with it. It's more commonly argued that Stonely and its grounds were the inspiration for Southerton, not Mansfield. Although either way, it's definitely possible that Austen pulled some specific details from Stonely for the scene at Mansfield Park as Zook lays out. But I just wanted to mention that since when it comes to discussing which building in real life might have been the inspiration for a building in Austin, that's something that there's a lot of opinions on and that people love to debate. Right. And I just have to say, I have to laugh at one more reference that Zook makes, since she actually throws some shade at Charlotte Bronte's use of celestial references. So Zook writes, Miss Austen gets it right, in striking contrast to some of her less careful colleagues, such as Charlotte Bronte. The behavior of the moon in Jane Eyre is, well, remarkable is the polite word. I love the sassy astronomer. Right? I love it. I'm here for every bit of that. Now let's move on to some of the more figurative elements of the stargazing scene and how it fits into the larger narrative of Mansfield Park. Maggie Lane writes in her article, Stargazing with Fanny Price, this image of Fanny alone staring at the night sky is so emblematic of Fanny's position throughout the novel, essentially alone, though never without the hope of Edmund's sympathetic company and consoling herself for the rubs of social contact by contemplation of the natural world. Oh. I'm, go I'm gonna cry. <laughs> it's so sad. It's so sad and it's so like visual, right? You get the impact by just envisioning this, right? I think we should read some of Fanny's specific rhapsodizing so that we get the kind of full impact of, of her sitting, sitting by the window, thinking about the stars. And so after Edmund and Mary Crawford have been having their like debate about whether Edmund should be in orders, Edmund turns to her and she basically starts spouting her, her views about the night sky. She says, here's harmony. Here's repose. Here's what may leave all painting and all music behind and what poetry only can attempt to describe. Here's what may tranquilize every care and lift the heart to rapture. When I look out on such a night as this, 
I feel as if there could be neither wickedness nor sorrow in the world, and there certainly would be less of both if the sublimity of nature were more attended to, and people were carried more out of themselves by contemplating such a scene. Yet another solid case for the fact that Fanny and Marion Dashwood absolutely oh should gosh. have two halves of a best friend's necklace. Yes. Yeah, and and she's you know she's like nature will heal the world's problems, and she feels this in her soul. She's really feeling her dead leaves, except right. for her dead leaves are in the night sky. Right. So <laughs> we just don't get a lot of Fanny sort of just speaking, right. you know, for herself. She's the watcher, right? She's often kind of in the background and she's quiet. She's seeing it all and she's taking it all in, but she's not necessarily contributing often to the conversation. Also, because you know Aunt Norris won't let her, right? So we don't have those large segments of dialogue from her in the text. But when we do get these pieces, it's often in this kind of vein. Yeah. You know, it's this kind of poetry about nature. Absolutely. And, and as we mentioned in our episode on The Fallen Avenues, Fanny is really sensitive to the connections between nature and poetry. So I love that in this moment, she is, as Maggie Lane points out, giving us the only clear iambic pentameter in Austen's prose. So when Fanny says... When I look out on such a night as this, if you listen carefully, that is that iambic pentameter, when I look out on such a night as this. And so we're actually getting like Fanny philosopher poet mode fully activated here. She's a little baby Shakespeare, just looking at the night sky. She's been reading her Cooper and she is, she's feeling it. I just want to give her a hug. Right? What's also happening in the scene is that Fanny is trying to draw Edmund's attention back to herself and away from Mary Crawford. She's leaning into the fact that while the conversation they just had with Mary leaves Edmund a little disappointed in Mary's education and viewpoints, Fanny is over here saying, you taught me to think and feel. (laughs) Hello, I'm the perfect fit. You belong with me. Cue the video. Again, Diane's theory that you belong with me is just her theme song. It, it, It holds water, my friends. It holds water. That music video was secretly directed by the ghost of Fanny. I just... I will accept nothing else. <gasps> Taylor Swift, call me. Let me know your inspirations. Right. Yeah. When did you read Mansfield Park before you yes, wrote this? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, and speaking of videos, um, it's interesting to think about the way that this has only been represented on film once that I can kind of think of in terms of adaptations. I might be wrong, but in the 2007 adaptation, they do actually try to depict this scene, but they remove Mary Crawford as a temptation. Like it's, it's so, everybody's gone to bed. And it's meant as this kind of like flirty scene between the two, you know, all alone on the veranda at night, alone. Salacious. <laughs> and this is like, it's not, it's not super important. But when I, when I say that it's like trying to be a flirty scene, like their fingers touch and they look at each other and it's like, oh, this is, this is not how it was written. I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> so if you want to kind of channel your inner Fanny Price and do some stargazing, we will post on our website a few additional star chart references including a link to an interactive map that allows you to kind of chart the constellations for any date and time. So you can get a, you know, an approximation of what they were seeing in the sky. And you can find us on Instagram at the thing about Austin and on Twitter at Austin underscore things. You can also check out our website, thethingaboutaustin.com and email us at thethingaboutaustin at gmail.com. And speaking of email, we have a lovely email from listener Jen in New Zealand who wrote to us about our Christmas at Pemberley episode. So Jen grew up in New Zealand, but her family is English. And she writes, 
I grew up surrounded by my parents' friends who all emigrated from the UK in the 1970s and 80s, so there was a lot of traditional English influence on my childhood, especially if it was silly, including playing Snapdragon at a few Christmas parties. You just know when this email landed in our inbox, I was so, so excited. excited. <laughs> I about lost my mind. One quick health and safety point. Brandy has a really low flash point, meaning it catches fire at temps as low as 26 degrees Celsius. So no worries about molten fruit. It's mostly just warm no matter how long it's been in the dish, especially given we have summer Christmases, so the fruit and nuts are often just at room temperature. That said, I do remember getting a pretty scalding Brazil nut once. I very much appreciate this note from Jen that does explain how this could be sort of a an acceptable activity for children. Right. And she does go on to say that one of the reasons why she loves Snapdragon so much was because it was parentally approved playing with fire. As a kid, I can see the, the I totally see the appeal. <laughs> for anybody who goes back and listens to a Christmas at Pemberley episode, and you can just hear my incredulous freaking out about this. <laughs> I accept and acknowledge that done under the right circumstances, as Jen describes here with the brandy, everything would be fine. I think what I still am concerned about, I'm just thinking about in a Regency setting, especially if it's not like a family activity, I could just imagine like a bunch of intoxicated rakes about town. Yeah. Henry Crawford and his friends having a debauched Christmas <laughs> evening, right? You know, like somehow the bowl gets knocked over, a pile of papers catches on fire. I'm just saying like, I can see things happening. An entire like men's nightclub just up in flames. <laughs> I can envision a scenario where, at the very least, several pairs of eyebrows are just gone, you know, singed off completely. So I still stand by that. I do appreciate this, uh, this additional information. Oh, man. Love it. Even Jen says that she did get that pretty hot scalding Brazil nut. Right. Thank you, Jen, so much for that email. Again, I was just, I was so, so happy to get this. We also had a Twitter listener who, who pointed out that, that because of our episode, they tried Snapdragon. So... Look at us being influencers. Regency Christmas influencers. Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> and stay tuned for our next episode, where we'll be talking about Austin and romance with our guest, B. Koch. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.